Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. Of CD game show trolls, the smiling lie of the televised hive. The witches are watching with their thousand eyes. Witches are watching with their thousand eyes. We smell rotten teeth. That speak beyond belief. A stick inside their skull. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 57. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. We're working feverishly to get headquartered the book on the monkeys' solo careers out in February or March of 2020 in time for Beetlefest. My co author, Michael A. Ventrella, will be attending and selling copies of it and our previous monkeys book there. I'm doing the final edits and image placement for the TTFE scrapbook. It looks really good and I will be turning it in soon. I just got the assignment to do an article for Back Issue Magazine on Underdog. The Warren Kremer book is due back in February and I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency and of course the Mad book. Today's show features an artist and writer I have long admired for his quirky art style and humorous writing. He is best known for his work on neat stuff and hate, but he has done much more. Here he is, Peter Bag. So on the phone today we have Peter Bag. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Okay, great. And uh, as I usually do when I start little interviews about people's careers, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in cartooning and writing and all the things you do. Oh, well, um, to keep that to answer that as briefly as possible, <laughs> um, grew up just not uh, not taking comics or art very seriously, just doodling every now and then when the muse struck, and also trying to emulate my older brother, <laughs> who was a natural cartoonist but never really did anything with it. Never tried to make a living at it but it was just a way of bonding with my older brother uh but then eventually i had to figure out something to do with my life and i stunk at everything else <laughs> I, was a ter- I was a terrible student so uh and to be honest uh what really inspired me more than anything else was um discovering underground comics in general and Robert Crumb's comics in particular. When I not just his art and writing itself, but also the way he used the comic book format. Just the way he would treat it like a blank canvas and fill it up with whatever he wanted to. Um that I thought was the perfect mode of self expression and that sent me flying down that particular road that I've been going down ever since. <laughs> now, did you have any formal training or anything, or are you just a natural? Or? Uh, well, you know, I took a small handful of art classes in high school, and then 
for three semesters, I went to the School of Visual Arts. Hmm. Um, and I had a handful of pretty good teachers, a lot of frauds, but yes, I particularly <laughs> liked, my dra- liked my drawing teachers, and that's always what I was a bit better at than everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I, re- I didn't, I didn't, en- they've, in your freshman year, they force you to try everything. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I really don't enjoy painting. I didn't enjoy photography. Mm. Uh, sculpting. It's <laughs> 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 only drawing. That was the only thing that they, that I took there that uh, I enjoyed. They, if I stuck with the school, I could, I could have eventually taken the small handful of comic classes that they taught there but I ran out of money, dropped out thought vaguely about going back but never bothered to um, for two reasons, one is I still had my student pass and uh, so occasionally when I had when I had the time um, I would attend uh, some of the cartooning classes and I thought Spiegelman's was particularly interesting mm-hmm. um, I also taught I, I forgot, I taught uh uh, I not taught. I'm sorry. I took a nighttime cartooning course taught by someone named Peter Paul Porges, who oh. was a mad cartoonist yeah. and writer, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was very interesting. I enjoyed that. But otherwise, I met outside of school. I met other cartoonists, mm-hmm. particularly like-minded cartoonists, and you know they would give me tips just that way. Uh, I've learned much faster that way too. I remember. Um, one time I was at a friend's house um, and I saw he had the old way of coloring comics, which was the overlays, the ruby lith or oh, amber yeah. lith. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew that that, that was, there was like, that's how you did the four color process of coloring comic art. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, asked, I had no idea how to do it. So I asked him how to do it. Within an hour or two, I knew all the basics. I knew enough to just expand on what my friend showed me. Mm-hmm. And once I was done, I realized that would have been an entire semester-long course at the School of Visual Arts. <laughs> <laughs> and I picked it all up in an hour or two. Wow. Um, so when you were drawing your earliest stuff, even before or during or after, did you draw in the same sort of kind of loosey-goosey style that you do now, or did you did that evolve over time? Yeah, yeah it, was always, always, it was pretty doodly. I mean, when I'd sit down and draw an object, I did a pretty good job of recreating that object. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I could, you know, when I tried to, I could draw realistically. Yeah. I just didn't want to. I found <laughs> drawing that way yeah, You have like a rubbery style, I guess. You know, yes. On, well, on like the cartoon. Wikipedia page, which I looked at, it says they compare it to Bob Clampett, and I go, oh, I guess so, you know, but I, I, I know what they're trying to say, you know. Sure, well, they probably got that from me. Because, oh, okay. um, <laughs> well, you know, of course, I like to... My favorite art as a kid was, you know, the funny pages, Peanuts, Beetle Belly, etc., etc. Um, and then, of course, Mad Magazine. And, and the mad artists that I wanted to emulate the most were uh, Don Martin, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Paul Coker Jr. and uh, Sergio Arangonis. But also, even though it wasn't comic book art, I was very drawn to... Uh, the art style of Warner Brother cartoons, especially from the 40s. Mm-hmm. And I liked all of it. You know, I, to a certain degree, I liked all that old school animation, but uh, particularly Warner Brother cartoons, and particularly from the 40s, and particularly Bob Clampett. Right. 
Now we're jumping ahead a little bit, but since you're talking about animation, you did some animation for this like round table pizza commercials. Did you do any other animation besides that? And can you talk about the round table commercials? Sure. It was, well, this was, I guess, at the peak of my career, somebody called me up and said, would you like to design the artwork for this round table advertising campaign that we have? So, uh, they flew me down to San Francisco and for roughly a week, I guess, I just uh, worked with the directors and animators and it was all, everything was their idea. They just basically told me what to draw and uh, they just wanted to use my drawing style. Okay. And I've never done anything quite like that. <laughs> now, I never, now did you know, just do model sheets or did you do actual storyboards or anything else? Yeah, pretty much both. Mm-hmm. You know, just anything, anything that they needed from me to capture my art, but they I seem to recall that they pretty much told me exactly what to draw, and then I would draw it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and again, these were all of the, there were like three or four of them. All of them were uh, fifteen seconds long. They were very very short commercials, mm-hmm. um, and they, it, it was very frustrating. But uh, <laughs> Roundtable wasn't in many markets, so very few people saw it. Mm-hmm. There were even like there were one or two Roundtable pizzas in the Seattle area where I lived. Mm-hmm. They didn't even show these commercials up here. I think it was mostly in the Bay Area. They yeah. Showed them. See, I saw them, so I, just, I. But I know I don't think Roundtable is a national chain, so I, I don't know how right. much coverage it did get outside the Bay Area. But I know that would have been. I remember a, a friend of mine who lived in the Bay Area, half jokingly said to me, "I feel like I'm living in Pete Bag's world." <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's all it takes. A handful of 15-second commercials, and it's my world. Yes. <laughs> uh, other than that, there's been a lot of, um, uh, there's been a handful of, like, short little animated things I've worked on. Some some were finished. There's something that I did with, there was something I did with the comedian Dana Gould. Oh, yeah. Which ran on icebox.com, and it, it was our um, we just turned Brian Wilson's father, Murray Wilson, uh, into a cartoon character and uh, made <laughs> four of those. And I, I'm, of all the things I worked on that was an animation project, that's not only is it the one I'm the most proudest of, it's the only one <laughs> I'm proud of. Okay. The thing is, I'm, I'm not an animator, so I'm very much at the mercy of whoever is the animator, director, producer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, could, I could bellyache all I want, but in yeah. the end, I'm at their mercy. Yeah, I've heard that before from different cartoons that suddenly their cartoons are turned into animation. And it's like, I don't draw like that or whatever. I, I, right. They wouldn't move that way in my mind or something, you know, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and there's one, there's a short, it was meant to be an introduction to a documentary about the uh, grunge rock scene in Seattle. Uh-huh. It was a movie called Hype. And I was hired to uh, do a to work on a short little, like, th- maybe three-minute long, I can't remember now, a very short cartoon that was going to open the movie. And uh, and the person that... So I came up with a story, I storyboarded it, character designs, as much as I could, being just a cartoonist and not an animator. And the director was from the uh, Crick Falusi, um Ren and 
in Stimpy School. So the the art looked. It still he was working from my model sheets, but it's, everything looked and moved like a Ren and Stimpy cartoon. Look, oh, little herky jerky kind of. Yes, yeah. and, but, but the, and, and I was fine with it. I thought it looked great, but then when it came down to the voice actors, uh, particularly the actor who did Buddy Bradley, I couldn't stand it, and yeah. I, I I made my objection clearly known <laughs> I, but there was nothing I could do oh. I complained and complained I said that I go I'm not crazy really for the most time, I'm not too crazy about any of the voices but that voice is terrible <laughs> and uh, for, for whatever reason the the director just dug in his heels stuck with that same actor and ever since it drives me crazy ever since mm. whenever somebody's like you could see it on YouTube whenever somebody sees that cartoon they almost always write to me and complain about particularly the voice of Buddy Bradley like I don't know <laughs> <laughs> like like I said like I said and did nothing <laughs> whereas I did and said everything I could <laughs> wow <laughs> um you mentioned that Marie Wilson thing. I haven't seen that one in particular, but wh- I, I, I assume you have a fondness for the Beach Boys, but what were those about? Uh, it, what happened at the time, this was like around 2002, I believe, and it was still, you still had this dot-com boom going on. Mm-hmm. All these websites were popping up that had way too much funding, <laughs> and they were just throwing money around like crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so here was an opportunity for me to have money thrown at me, <laughs> And what this company, White Icebox, did was they liked to combine artists and or animators and, and team them up with a comedy writer, a comedian or a comedy writer. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they teamed me up with Dana Gould, and they did that because we knew each other. Right? Oh, okay. I knew the, and Dana Gould, at that time, I think he was work, still working full-time as a writer for The Simpsons. Okay. And... Um, and right before Icebox asked me and Dana Gould to do this, Dana and I had been talking about a, a docudrama series about the Beach Boys, the life of the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a friend of Dana Gould's was the actor who played Murray Wilson. Yeah. And we just loved the character of Murray Wilson. Yeah. Um, just the way, it, just stories that you hear about him in real life, there's like all these tape recordings that people pass around of him just losing his shit. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I mean, he was, a, he was a, a mean, abusive man, but from a distance he was hilarious. And yeah. It's just, you know, I'm of the type where cranky old men, cranky dads are always funny. Yeah. You know? So, uh, and, and Dana felt the same way. So when Icebox said, why don't the two of you come up with a cartoon idea? Pretty much the only idea that we pitched to them was turning Murray Wilson into a cartoon character. <laughs> wow. Okay. And they said yes. Amazingly, they said yes. <laughs> so are you, are you a fan of the many moods of Murray Wilson then, that album? <laughs> oh, that album? No. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I have it. Yeah. Uh, I think somebody gave it to me as a gift. It's not, you know, it's background easy listening yeah, music, I know. <laughs> basically. I, I think he, like, barely did anything. He and he hired the full orchestra. I think he hired the same orchestra. The, what is the conductor's name? Dick Reynolds, the same person who um, arranged the strings for the and the horns for the Beach Boys Christmas albums. Oh, okay. And uh, but 
and, and it was paid for out of the Beach Boys recording budget. He basically just robbed from his sons. <laughs> well, that wasn't <laughs> to the pay first. for his own easy listening album. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the first time. So yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, enough on that. I was just kind of curious about it. It's an odd subject, but you did say you know you did answer one question. I thought of is like, were you partnered with Dana Gould because you knew him, or if you know they thought you yeah, might be I, good I fit? So I, I can't remember exactly what what the steps were, but yeah, it did have to do with the fact that we already knew each other mm-hmm. you know that was a big and work that's the other thing too another reason why i'm happy with the way those cartoons came out is because of dana mm-hmm. they were made in la dana was in, lives in la he was able to uh be much more hands-on than i could be with any of these projects living in uh seattle and um and also all the voice actors that he used were two things they were friends of his and they also were comedian slash voiceover actors who I also knew and and or knew their work like Tom Kenny who's Spongebob he did a bunch of voices mm-hmm. and Paul F. Tompkins did the voice of Murray Wilson and he was fantastic mm-hmm. he was perfect I, I, like I said right out of the gate we gotta get Paul Tompkins to be Murray <laughs> and he was perfect <laughs> so no Buddy Bradley problems here <laughs> no no it was the opposite the voices were fantastic that's great um, so let's jump back. So after college, I guess, or oh, whatever art training you were doing, um, was your first kind of professional thing for John Holstrom's Punk Magazine, or did you do anything prior to that? Um, I, through a mutual friend, I met Holmstrom, mm-hmm. and Holmstrom was totally prepared to run at least one or two comic strips of mine in punk but that was right when punk went out of business <laughs> so technically in a real roundabout way i did appear in punk because a year or maybe two years later a special edition of punk magazine came out and that had that pretty much had the same comics in it that Holmstrom would have used if, mm, okay. uh, so i guess there was one last very delayed issue of punk magazine mm, okay. um but uh, meanwhile i was i was starting to get published work here and there usually for porno magazines yeah it always seemed like in high times i was working pretty regularly for high times magazine um who paid fairly decently except that you always had to take them to small claims court to get paid <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> i know but it, it, you always won you know, I guess they were just counting on some people being too lazy, but I was that was like a regular part of my routine is going to small claims court. Wow. And I would win by default because uh, High Times never sent anybody to defend themselves. Right. <laughs> so uh, it would just be me, and the judge would put the hammer down. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was that. It was, it, that was pretty insane. But I, me, along with a lot of other cartoonists um, at that time, who worked in a kind of undergroundy or and or humorous style mm-hmm. a lot of us worked regularly for screw magazine okay and again not a great page rate and whatever you did for them had to be absolutely filthy and vile <laughs> and offensive that's what they were looking for but that was fine by me yeah and uh and they other than that they gave you a lot of leeway you know they were always open to any ideas you might have and um i can remember one time they had me uh they hired me. They they wrote it. The staff there. Do you know who Drew Friedman is? Yeah, he does like um, the his, pixelated cartoons and his work for Mad and other things. Right. Mm-hmm. And his brother, 
his older brother, yeah. Josh Friedman, yeah. was a editor and writer at that time for Screw. Oh, okay. And so Josh Friedman and, a, and a, another friend of his, they um, hired me. He called me up and said, do you want to come down here? We've got uh, this piece that we want you to do. And he showed it to me. And now, you know, Josh and his writing partner, the other editor there, and Al Goldstein, who owns Screw Magazine, they're all Jewish. Mm-hmm. And the strip was pretty much... I, I think it was like kind of a take or a riff on Fiddler on the Roof, but it basically was just totally over the top, filthy, X-rated uh, satire of Orthodox Jews, and it could not have been more anti-Semitic. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, and I said, "Are you sure you want me?" to draw this and they said I said I must be like your your most goyish contributor <laughs> and they said that's and they said that's why we want you to draw it whatever that meant <laughs> yes <laughs> it's like we don't want to get in trouble let's give it to Peter right. hey <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, well, that's just it. That's something I loved about Al Goldstein. Yeah. Al Goldstein did want to get in trouble. He loved being in trouble. He yep. relished it. Yeah. I mean, he got, toward, as, as, the, as his life went on, he really, he became utterly self-destructive. Right. But at the time I was working for him, I mean, of course, I didn't want to be him. I didn't want <laughs> to be his pal and hang out with him. But I loved everything. I loved the idea of him and everything he was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. I loved what a bomb thrower and troublemaker he was. Yeah. I, you know, I I met him once. He came out to the Bay Area uh, for Cinequest, a film festival, sometime in the 90s. And I just went up to him because, hey, I know who he is. I'll get his autograph. <laughs> he told me to fuck off. Oh, <laughs> so, <really? laughs> <laughs> he goes, I don't sign anything, you know, because I guess he thought I'd have a subpoena or something. I don't know. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I get it, you know. So I never got his autograph, but I met him. And, hey, I feel honored. I was told to fuck off by Al Goldstein. I guess there, you go. there you go. There is a, there's an old documentary that Goldstein himself made mm-hmm. of, uh, of him interviewing Robert Crumb. I guess he made it for his old uh, public access TV show, which is called Midnight Blue. So he actually, he asked Crum if it would be okay, and Crum said sure. So he went out to that small little farmhouse that Robert Crum lived in, in Winters, California, just way in the middle of nowhere. You have to drive past all of these uh, uh, fruit and nut farms. (laughs) And uh, and Crum said all of a sudden, here comes this ridiculous, gigantic Cadillac. And Goldstein comes out in uh, a festoon jumpsuit like he's Glenn Campbell mm-hmm. and has this tall, skinny model girlfriend du jour with him and uh, and sits on this on the front porch in this jumpsuit <laughs> interviewing Robert Crumb on his, you know, where Crumb is like there with his banjo, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, funny, the funniest thing, too, I remember about this interview is Goldstein said to Crumb, you're always... All the women you draw, they're always these thick women, these big, powerful, thick women, yeah. wide, yeah. solidly built. He goes, "Was that?" And Crumb says, "Well, yeah. Well, that's my type. That's my female ideal." Yeah. And he says, "But you never." He goes, "Don't you want to mix it up? Don't you ever want to, you know, a thin, lithe woman like my girlfriend here?" And Crumb says, "No, no offense, but that's just I'm just not attracted." To that type of woman, so why would I? And then Goldstein suddenly goes <laughs> to Crumb. 
You know what would be great is if you and I were the last men on Earth, because then we could split the whole female population in half, and we'll never fight over whose girls. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was like the most pathetic adolescent fantasy that suddenly came out of Goldstein's mouth. <laughs> and Crumb's like, yeah, okay, that'd be great. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, now, from then on, you're, you're already talking about Crumb. Did, was Weirdo the next project you worked on, or did you do yeah, other things pre- in between? Yeah, pretty much. I did this and that. Oh, to back up a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, even though I was finding little teeny tiny scraps of freelance work here and there, I still wanted to do longer stories. And by longer stories back then, it meant do a comic that was longer than one page. Right. And the only way I could conceive of doing it or having anybody else let me do it is if I self-published. So John Holmstrom and I, along with other like-minded cartoonists we banded together pooled our money together and uh, we did three issues of comical funnies oh, that yeah. came out first issue came out in 1980 mm-hmm. um and then like i did a one something similar i did a one shot with a cartoonist named ken wiener who now goes by the name ken avador mm. and uh i was we were both going to do our own comic book like a solo comic book but for whatever reason we decided to pool our resources and we made a two-sided comic book <laughs> and that was like called The Wacky World of Peter Bag. and then if you flip it it was The Wacky World of Ken Wiener mm. and then right. sometime after that as I was already getting a small handful of pieces published in Robert Crumb's Weirdo mm-hmm. and then at a certain point Crumb asked me if I'd be the managing editor of Weirdo <laughs> And I think we talked about that before, but what was that like? Was that like, I don't want to do this, or were you thrilled about that? Oh, no, I was thrilled. Robert Crumb was and is my all-time favorite artist, so the idea of work, and he's, with my dealings with him when I was submitting work to him, he seemed like a, a very nice, reasonable, professional person. Mm-hmm. So my impression, even though we hadn't, hadn't met yet, just with my through-the-mail dealings with him, I had nothing to complain about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very supportive. Of course, I was very surprised that he, that he asked me to take over simply because we had never met. Yeah. But he, <laughs> you know, he told me, and his wife Eileen told me that uh, he did think long and hard about who to ask, hmm. and uh, and he um, he made it crystal clear to me right from the start what was involved. Hmm. A hard, lot of work. No money. Uh, the <laughs> contributors are insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Now, did you eventually make your way down to Winters to meet up with them? Or no? Yes, a short okay. while after that. Um, my wife and I visited uh, Robert Crumb. And, uh, yeah, we got along fine. I think, I, and in fact, I think I had assembled all the artwork for the first issue of mm-hmm. Weirdo. And so I brought it to... Crumb's house first, and we hung out some time there in winters, and then we all drove into San Francisco and delivered the artwork to uh, the publisher. Oh, Last Gasp. Uh, Last Gasp, yeah. yes. And um, I know you're part of the... Well, I interviewed you for the uh, an article for Back Issue. We did a weirdo article, and then John Cook worked on his book at the same time and finally came out recently, and I saw that you were 
teamed up with Chrome one more time for photos and things like that. So, oh, yes. how, how how was that, and how did you like that book that finally came out? Oh, I was really flattered by it. Mm-hmm. Um, as, like recently, we did this event at Columbia University where me and the Crumbs, along with Drew Friedman, we all shared the stage and talked about working on Weirdo. And I reminded uh, Crumb at the time that when I was still, during my tenure as the managing editor, I was trying so hard, to doing everything I could think of to expand the readership, mm-hmm. the circulation of the magazine. And by doing that, I was just trying to make people more aware of it, you know, sending out press releases and uh, copies of it to any publication that I would think might conceivably consider writing it up. Mm-hmm. But nothing worked, and I was getting utterly fed up and uh, complained to Crum about it. I remember telling him why I feel like we're both of us that we're beating our heads against the wall. Like, what is the point? <laughs> and uh, and Crum's response was, Pete, don't worry about it. It's rough right now, but eventually the world will be throwing laurels at our feet. <laughs> and even at the time, that seemed like a bit of an exaggeration, but mm-hmm. I took it. It worked on me that I took some solace in that, and I stopped being such a quiet baby for a while. And uh, but then you know, ten years go by, twenty years go by. Weirdo, it's just like, oh my god! Whenever I would think of Weirdo Magazine, I would just think, what laurels? It's got become totally forgotten. Mm. Weirdo is utterly and totally forgotten. It's just in the dustbin of history. <laughs> but then John, you know, was starting, gosh, I think it was like 15 years ago when he started interviewing me mm-hmm. about not just my career, but for his comic art magazine, but uh, uh, Weirdo in particular, which slowly evolved into a whole book. It became an obsession of Cook's, obviously, right, right. and eventually became a whole book. And now it's almost like my reaction is the opposite when I see that that book I went from everybody forgot about weirdo to now when I look at that book I just think this is overkill (laughs) this is too much (laughs) although but you know you know I'm cracking wise it's like I'm I'm thrilled at the book (laughs) really very very flattered yeah well the same thing happened with me I don't know if you ever saw my finished article and back issue I could probably I can't remember. send you a How link, but the, but opinion? you know I interviewed everybody as like as many people as I could, including Crumb. He was very gracious. He he's he, he, I didn't know if you know because now he's in France. I said I don't know if I can get a hold of him, so I emailed him. I got his email, and it was like six months later. It was like right at the deadline, and he's really apologetic and really nice. He goes, "Oh, I'm so sorry, Mark. I just saw your email. I never checked my email," and he gave me these big lengthy answers like if I really was just sitting down with him and talking with him about it and it's like oh he saved my article but as a consequence the article became like 23 pages with everybody's comments and everything and I, 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 uh how long ago did this come it out? was jeez oh, um it was before uh, Cook's book came out because a lot of people asked me when I was interviewing people, "Are you doing this for John Cook?" He already interviewed me, and they're kind of grumbly because you know his book hadn't come out yet. And I go, "No, I'm doing this totally independent of him. I don't know what he's doing." Yeah. So, so this issue of Back Issue came out what in the last year or two? Um, about let's see, was I here in Oregon? Probably about 2014, 2015. I think about the time I moved up here. I must be senile if, if 
yeah. you sent me a copy, and why am I drawing a blank? This is terrible. You think <laughs> this should be totally fresh in my mind? Well, I, you know, offline we can, you know, I can make arrangements, to get you an issue or something like that. I'm okay. I don't know if I have any extras left, but I could probably get Michael Yuri to send you at least the digital copy. But you know, at first okay. he was like. 23 pages, Mark, and then he read through it and he goes, done, I'm pulling other articles, you're going to get it. <laughs> and okay, so I'm like, shoot, you know? <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, because usually they don't like their articles being more like 7 or 8 pages or something like that, 10 max or something, and here's mine at 23, and it's like, ah. <laughs> <Right. laughs> but, uh, yeah, I tried to take a different approach, uh, and, you know, it, it if someone is a real weirdo aficionado, you know, not to toot my own horn too much, you really kind of need John's book and that issue of back issue too, you know, to kind of get the whole story because he asks different questions than I ask. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so, anyway, um, let's see. What was I going to ask? Oh, um, so that's where I first saw your stuff was in Weirdo. So, you know, I was one of those ones that said, oh, you know, I love this stuff. And then it just kind of went away. So I may have asked you this before, but here we are. Um, after 28 issues, Weirdo ended. Uh, were you pleased by that or upset by that? I know you weren't editing it at the end. But... Right. Oh, when it came to an end? Well, mm -hmm. first of all, I, like at the time that I, and I had no choice when I quit editing Weirdo, um... Aileen Crumb seemed like the perfect replacement uh, because right. she lives with Robert Crumb. Right. And it still was, it always was Robert Crumb's magazine, you know, and so I always described it as myself as the managing editor, and Aileen would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. It still was always very much, that's the reason people bought it, mm -hmm. for the most part, was Robert Crumb's artwork. Um, but just... I quit, so I couldn't blame Eileen for quitting, and by that point, the Chromos just thought, what's the point of trying to find somebody else? Mm -hmm. This has been 10 years, you know, the anthologies should have a limited lifespan, and there, by that point, there were a lot of other anthologies popping up, mm -hmm. uh, so it's like, this isn't necessary anymore. Not only that, but a lot of the younger contributors who were, who a lot of whom work first appeared in Weirdo, mm -hmm. By that point, they had a lot of them had their own comic titles, their yeah. own book projects. So you didn't need this magazine to for these young artists to get their work seen. More and more of them were getting their very own titles. Right. So that was another reason why I felt like the magazine wasn't really all that necessary. Now, did that happen to you? I mean, was this around the time Neat Stuff started, or? Yes, and that is that is the number one reason why I eventually had to quit doing weirdo okay. is uh Fantagraphics was kind enough to uh give me my own title which mm -hmm. was at that time was the real dream come true for me mm -hmm. even though i still was not making any money to the <laughs> or not making much money yeah. throughout that the whole time i was doing neat stuff but um but Fantagraphics wanted me to uh turn an issue out on a regular basis um, at first they wanted it to be quarterly mm -hmm. and this was like a oversized 32 page comic book right um, and we so we and I said that's impossible we agreed to me doing it three times a year but just trying to get my own comic book out three times a year it was taking up all of my time mm -hmm. and and I could see with my own eyes that weirdo magazine was suffering because of it mm. I, I still was getting good work sent to me, Robert Crumb was still doing really great work for it, but I 
didn't have that energy to go and find new artists and new work mm-hmm. or go back in time and find old features to run. I just, uh, I, I wasn't uh, fussing over it like I was before Neat Stuff started. <laughs> so Neat Stuff actually started while you were still editor of Weirdo. Yes, oh, okay. yes, like all through 85 and most of 1986, okay. I was uh, doing both. Oh. <laughs> and yes, it was very, very difficult. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I didn't realize because it's like, you know, as a fan, I don't pay attention necessarily to all that stuff. I just remember you're in Weirdo and then you got your own book and I was like, ooh, I like this, you know, because I liked your work, you know. Oh, so, <laughs> so, um, and I, I somehow missed the first issue of Neat Stuff. I eventually got it and started with issue two. So I don't know. It was like, I guess distribution was might have been spotty on the first one. I don't know. But, oh, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, you know, but. You know, what sold me, you know, on getting every issue is, you know, all your girly girl. That was the strips that I liked the best. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. That was, that, was the, that was the character that my publishers liked the least. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, this is kind of funny, and I won't name names just to, to protect the innocent, but, you know, one of my girlfriends, who a mutual friend of ours, Lee Hester of Lee's Comics, knows sure. uh, as well. We, we took to calling her girly girl and it was kind of a sign of affection not that she really was <laughs> girly girl is just a funny nickname to give her you know and it's like you know so anyway uh long time ago but you know we still refer to her hey remember when you were dating girly girl yeah yeah <laughs> anyway so that's a nod to you so <laughs> uh, and you did one of lee's shows right he did like um um uh like a punk and alternative kind of you know show in the bay area once and it was you and like uh, a bunch of other people that were from weirdo is that correct who was this lee 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 hester of lee's Comics. yes yeah. yes he did I, I did two signings there i can't remember where the one you're talking about well i can remember doing a signing there with phoebe, phoebe glockner there was yeah. like other bay area cartoonists and bill yeah. griffith and diane newman yeah i remember them being there yeah i think even Aileen? Did Aileen go? Crumb didn't go, but for no. some reason I have a vague recollection of... Uh, I have. I don't remember everyone. Fleener was there, you know, so... Okay, yeah. And, uh, and then and then uh, a few years later I did a signing there with uh, Dan Klaus. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that, too. So, anyway, just kind of refreshing memories on these things. Right. Um, so, Neat Stuff lasted, what, like 17 issues or is it a little more? I forgot. Uh, 15. 15, okay. And um, uh, I still, ca- I hate to say this, but I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I, I liked it that you continued on with hate, but what I didn't care for is that it was all Bradleys. I was like, I like the Bradleys, but I like the other stuff. Where'd the other stuff go? Okay. But why did the uh, Bradleys uh, take off? Was that like the selling point of neat stuff or what was going on? Yeah, yeah. your, uh, your feelings on, your opinions on the characters, all my various characters from Need Stuff, is pretty much the opposite of most people's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, first of all, the Bradleys, it, well, two things that, that, that were occurring at the same time. One is the Bradleys stories, and then even more so, Buddy Bradley yeah. uh, was the breakout character. They, they always got the biggest, most positive response of everything that appeared in Need Stuff. Hmm. And that wasn't too surprising to me because. Um, they were the people that I had the most story ideas for. And oh, okay. that certainly was because they and Buddy were the most autobiographical. 
So I always had my own life to draw from. Mm, okay. Whereas um, other characters, Studs, Kirby, Jr., I, with all of them, I felt myself hitting a brick wall with them. Mm. It's like there's only okay. so much. You know, they were like, they really were cartoon characters. They right. weren't, the, and I couldn't see how they could evolve. Yeah. But if with Buddy Bradley in particular, and by extension his family, yeah. It'd be easy for me to see him evolving, especially if I aged him. Right. Because it's it's always like a sort of a version of my own life and my own experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's when uh, I started Hate in 1990. Mm -hmm. Um, We will be back after this message. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <laughs> The Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. And now back to the Fun Ideas Podcast. For one thing, I thought it would be more commercial to have a comic book that was focused mainly on this one character yeah. have a main star character mm-hmm. be easier for people to get their heads around that as opposed to neat stuff which wasn't it it was an anthology it was one yeah. person doing it but it was an anthology it was a mixture of all different characters and stories yeah. um, and, and, and that proved to be the case uh, right out of the gate hate sold so much better than neat stuff ever did <laughs> I guess I'm the minority, like you said, is like, I, I like the anthology idea, but I can't say I didn't like Hate because I kept buying it even through the annuals and kind of wish like it was still around now, <laughs> but, you know, um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting how the character evolved, you know, you said it was like uh, autobiographical to, to a point, I mean, what, uh, did... Did you have? Did you take Buddy into directions that you wish you could have gone in your life after a while, or was it trying oh, to be no, autobiographical? No, no, he was. Uh, he was uh, well, there were obvious differences. Buddy Bradley wasn't a cartoonist, no, and um, and he went into lines of work. He pursued certain things that I never have, and never tried to manage a grunge band and then like in, in the um hate annuals he wound up owning a scrap metal shop so but he always had this entrepreneurial spirit that i didn't have so, so that is a big difference mm-hmm. um the i the idea of doing what i had buddy bradley doing would have like a certain appeal to me but not enough to make me do it that wasn't that's gonna suddenly drop my pencil and get into the scrap metal business or the collectibles business right you know yeah. but there was always a there was a good there's a certain appeal to businesses like that that uh, that drew me to them mm-hmm. and early on with the bradleys this might be walking on little eggshells or something but i'll ask anyway and then you could say no <laughs> um did you have any issues or anything with matt graining or anything because simpsons kind of was kind of the same sort of idea at least initially of you know like a bickering family or... 
Right. Well, you know, I saw some similarities, and I used to, I used to wonder did, did the Bradleys inspire the Simpsons in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But then I thought, well, that's a bit ego, egotistical to assume. Mm. But then later, you know, later on with him, just very surreptitiously, and other people, it was like. It's been kind of confirmed to me that uh, the Simpsons were, in no small measure, inspired by the Bradleys. Yeah. Uh, but you know that. But you know the differences are also huge. Yeah. For one thing, um, the Simpsons are a vehicle for satire. It's right. as soon as it started, it was the new Mad Magazine. Right. The show is very satirical, and it just takes off in all these crazy directions that I never had any interest in doing. It has celebrity guest appearances. Right. Um, so it's it's all a, what drives it. The, the whole point of the show is satirical, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was not the case at all with the Bradleys or Buddy Bradley. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't, and, and Matt was also when he first got a deal uh, to do the Bradleys to, when it turned into a regular television show. He asked me to try my hand at uh, writing a script. Oh. So I actually had, yeah, to, you know, so not not to be a staffer on the show because I wasn't ready to move to L.A. and he didn't ask me that. Um, but uh, he just asked me to try my hand at uh, writing something, which is very, which was really nice of him. I did, I considered it for a bit, but then I declined because that was right around the time that I was starting to do Hate. Mm-hmm. I think the first issue of Hate might have even, I've already come out. I yeah. can't remember now, but it was already doing well. So yeah. it's like I was thinking. Was I'm or, right now, I'm doing everything. I'm accomplishing everything that I always want to accomplish. <laughs> so I'm not going to drop everything and invest a lot of time trying to do this other thing. Right. Maybe I should have tried to do both, but I just yeah. there would, would have been a big learning curve ahead for me because at that time I had never even tried to write a script. Hmm. So that might have been. I might have been biting off more than I could chew. But I still really appreciated the fact that he asked me. Okay. And it might have been him, I never asked him this, might have been him throwing me a bone to make up for the fact that uh, the Simpsons were, especially that very first episode, um, it was a Christmas, they they started the Simpsons with a Christmas episode, and there were noticeable similarities between that and a, a, a story of the Bradleys called Merry Fucking Christmas. Right, right. <laughs> yes. And um, so, yeah, a friend, a cartoonist friend of mine, she wrote that episode and I, I've never, bro- I never broached that subject with her though, but uh, okay. it's like, I don't know, I think there was a little bit of cherry picking going on. <laughs> I, I, I might have, uh, I, I, you know what I did one time when we were both drunk, I mentioned it to uh, Matt and uh-huh. he, he was both defensive and angry <laughs> so I was like alright well I'm just going to leave this alone okay. you know, I was just kind of curious I know it's a, maybe, yeah. I didn't know if it was a delicate subject or not so that was kind of a curiosity but, you know it's like, you but, know, it's like if, if I was petty I could piss and moan and make a big deal out of it right. and I, we did have some mutual friends who were like telling me I should sue him right right <laughs> I actually uh, I have tried to sue people who blatantly ripped off my drawing style who like ripped off right. there was a cartoon show it was, I always thought it was a horrible cartoon it was called uh, what was it called Eek the Cat oh yeah <laughs> uh, created by some asshole who called himself Savage Steve Holland or something uh-huh. like that there were two characters on that show that blatantly ripped off Girly Girl and yeah. Butch Bradley 
Yeah. It was unmistakable. <laughs> but And I actually contacted, uh, in fact, I contacted Matt Greening's lawyer because I knew nothing about that business. Yeah. And, um, and this woman later, she represented me early on in my career with um, uh, my other earlier attempts to try to get my own TV show going. Yeah. But, um, but not someone from her firm he explained to me like what was at stake like uh, how i could wind up spending a fortune in legal fees and not collecting a penny mm-hmm. so uh, so he says unless you've got a really big bank account yeah. i would really advise you against pursuing this it's just going to cost you a lot of money so that was why that was mm-hmm. why didn't. he explained to me all the reasons why whoever i'd be suing mm-hmm. the, i don't know the creator the, the most likely the network mm-hmm. who aired eat the cat but uh he says uh if you wind up in a courtroom the deck the, the deck is really stacked against you the but then it, i said okay then forget it then yeah. forget it not only will i not sue them only there were other people too that i considered suing who also blatantly ripped me off ripped oh. off my drawing style <laughs> and, and ripped off characters but well here's the thing all they had to do was tweak it like they just changed the color of say girly girl's hair yeah. or even though she, she for the most part she was a black and white comic strip mm-hmm. uh, uh just these tiny little changes that was enough to let them get away with it right. like in the court right. of law i was told all they have to do is say your character has freckles this character doesn't therefore they did not rip you off mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh since then it, it, again it always makes my head explode i almost wish people wouldn't say this to me but this would always happen is whenever i even sus- suspect that somebody uh was mining my comics for ideas or character designs i'll be at a comic convention say five ten years later somebody who was who worked on the animation on those shows would come up to me and tell me confirm my worst fears you know they would say oh yeah we were it's like we had copies of neat stuff sitting right on our drawing table wow we were just copying right out of your comic book oh, <laughs> yeah and i was like you know i wish you told me that <laughs> you would have done me a lot of, and he goes yeah but then i also would never work again right <laughs> you know <laughs> now conversely to bring it on a maybe happier note about it um did you ever try to uh get a bradley's or a buddy bradley cartoon series made or anything yeah like sure that? Oh, in, okay. in fact more often than not Either the Bradleys or Buddy Bradley is optioned by somebody. There's always somebody out there somewhere who's trying to get a TV show or or, or maybe a movie uh-huh. made based on specific Buddy and, and either as Buddy as a teenager with his family or Buddy as a young man. Mm-hmm. But um, and I've also had uh, with Buddy Bradley alone, I've had six development deals. Wow. So uh, yeah, so I've gotten you know <laughs> like. Fifty thousand dollars to co-write a, a pilot script, as well as like come up with a Bible, mm-hmm. if you know what that is, you know. A, yeah, character Bible. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's, uh, never. So I've made good money. Oh. Not making TV shows <laughs> on spec, on spec, basically. Oh. Yes. Wow. Yes. But, uh, well, you know that's just it. Not on spec. I got paid. I would yeah. get paid. Oh, money, okay. Good yeah. money yeah. to write this. But I mean, stuff. you didn't go to the final. There, was there any no, pilot? Like, were there any pilots right. made it, or anything? No, or that's it? just it. They wow. never, they never got what they call greenlit. 
I never got, I never cleared that hurdle. Mm. Every single time I'd get up to that hurdle, but would never clear it. <laughs> it's like twice with MTV, once with HBO, once with Fox, oh. once with Warner Brothers, and there's got to be at least one other person that I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, yeah, I could never, you'd always, they would never describe it or confirm it this way, but I'd always be in a horse race with another <laughs> animated show that that particular network was developing wow and i'd always lose out like with the, with fox i lost out to bob's burgers oh both sh- both shows were in development at the same time and they went with bob's burgers wow hmm. yeah give so, this man uh, a show come on <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah. there's and one blessing is like when you yeah. do reach that point when you do clear that hurdle yeah. and they quote unquote green light the show mm-hmm. then there's a rights reversion they will own the rights Mm. to the characters and that is really nerve-wracking because you think well what if they only decide to make six episodes and then they cancel it oh yeah so that you know i'll get i'll get some more money because definitely there's more money to be made it might raise the profile even further of my character but from that point on whoever it was that green whatever entity it is that green lit Buddy Bradley, they would own him. They would own Buddy Bradley. Mm. I would no longer own him. I usually it usually would be a real fight, but in each instance, whoever I had representing me as a lawyer when we're negotiating these development deals, they would always make sure that I could retain publishing rights. I could still make comics with him, and I'd still own the rights to the comics I already did do of him. Mm-hmm. But that would always be such a fight. That alone, wow. everything else I'd have to give up. If they wanted to make the worst, stupidest Buddy Bradley movies and toys and theme parks, mm. there's nothing I could do about it. Mm. You know, they they would own it outright. Mm. So sometimes I'm a little bit relieved that I never got greenlit because not only once, but yeah. there were two times where I could have surrendered the rights to Buddy Bradley to MTV. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a really hor- it was a horrifying thought then. <laughs> Wow. Um, let's see. Um, are you there? Yes. Oh, okay. Is uh, um, well, I guess you could do like what Matt Groening did. You know, it's like uh, they never he never did a life in hell. Uh, no, no, and that is why. That yeah. is exactly yeah. why he started down that road negotiating with people with his existing characters. But once him and his lawyer, once they saw that there was no way around this, that he would have to give up the rights. He just then ahead went ahead and made up some other set of characters from scratch. Right. He gave them the Bradleys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I'll give him somebody, I'll give him Peter's characters. Here we go. <laughs> so so you do a Life in Hell show. There we go. We got it settled. You go. you do, you know, it's Peter Bags Life in Hell. There we go. We could just call it Life in Heck or something. You know, and then I, I can get away with right. it. Anyway. Right. Um, Before, if, if just in case I wind up making a wisecrack at Matt Granny's expense. I just, I, I want to make it clear that I like the guy a lot, and he's always been really helpful to me, too. Yeah. Like, especially go, going down this road. Yeah. When I first started looking into doing, uh, and, it, and it wasn't me looking into it, it was like Hollywood was coming to me because hate became a mini-phenomenon. Yeah. So all of a sudden, Hollywood came a-calling. Mm. And I didn't, I was clueless. I had no idea what to do with them. Most of these people were absolute jackals. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I turned. I used to turn to him a lot. He was always yeah. very, very helpful to me, trying to help me get a TV 
show or at least survive the process in one piece. Right. I met him a few times. Yeah, he's very nice man and everything like that and i know everyone else like uh i don't have it set up yet but bill morrison i'm gonna uh interview on one of these shows he said yes and things like that so you know i'm friends with everybody that worked at bongo and stuff like that so yeah Yeah. good people (laughs) anyway um let's let's talk cracked for a bit since you know that's probably the first time (laughs) yeah there's a segue for you um <laughs> Why would anyone ever want to segue into Crash? <laughs> Just because I knew that would be a weird left turn. I'm, I'm like, well, I could talk about yeah, I could talk about sweatshop. No, let's talk Cracked. Okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> it's 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 impossible not to make fun of Cracked. Yes. And you know, again, it's like I'm not the least bit embarrassed of contributing to Cracked magazine. You know, it was fine. Well, you know, that, I, I actually enjoyed it. That was the first time I interviewed you, and that was about a decade ago, amazingly. But uh, the funny thing about it is, and, you know, you can repeat the story, is, like, you were only a writer on crack, which boggles my mind. How did that happen? <laughs> well, you know, this is around the time I was doing neat stuff, and there was still, like, you know, my I was still honing my art. There was my artwork in... Lisa, it was pretty intense. Uh, it was like a one on the one hand, still somewhat crude. I was still learn, you know, learning the tools of the trade and um, and still trying to make my work look more polished and appealing. It was still rough around the edges, and at the same time, it was also incredibly exaggerated and mm-hmm. over the top. So uh, the person at that time. Again, we're talking about like the mid '80s. Yeah. The person, as you well know, the person editing uh, cracked was more Todd. Yeah, and I've interviewed him is, on here, so and he's good friends. So, yeah, yeah, sure. You can and, say anything uh, you want about. Was, no. <laughs> no, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and he was younger than me. I'd only met him once or twice when he asked me to contribute, but uh, Mort was a very good friend. I think former roommates with Dan Klaus. Mm-hmm. And he, like, the minute he got the job, he tried to get. He did get Dan some work. Yeah. But, uh, and he had Dan, I don't know if Dan both wrote Andrew. I think he, I think Dan only on, did uh, artwork for Crack. On things like The Ugly Family, yeah, he only drew that. And they, they did uh, pen names for that. It was like Stosh Gillespie. Stosh Gillespie. Yeah. Well, that's just it. When Dan, <laughs> when his artwork first appeared in Crack, it was under his own name. Mm-hmm. But uh, this, uh, the publisher of Crack, this <laughs> Uh, Mort could remember tell you all this better than I can yeah. if he hasn't already. Yeah, <laughs> the public he was like just some mafiosi in Florida, you know, <laughs> a Florida tan and a Rolex watch, and he would he was pretty disengaged. Mm-hmm. But he just every now and then he would come in, and he'd look at what um, Mort was doing, and uh, and he complained about Dan Class's artwork. It looked weird, <laughs> you know, up at what almost always had almost everything that was in crack if it wasn't an artist that literally had done work for mad it was artists whose work looked very similar to mad mm-hmm. and apparently that's all the publisher wanted i just want this ma- this magazine was meant to be a rip off of mad right. i want it to look like the other mad magazine mm-hmm. and uh dan's work right out of the gate was it didn't look like you couldn't point at it and say oh he's doing uh, Jack Davis, yeah. or more Drucker, or Paul Coker Jr., or Al Jaffe. It's like it looked like Dan Klaus. Yeah. Well, according to both Morton Dan, 
the, that publisher hated his work. So yes, <laughs> but they but but Dan still needed work. Dan was right. still starting out and struggling, and Mort still desperately wanted to get his friend work. Yeah. So assuming that this guy wasn't too swift, yeah. <laughs> this publisher, yeah. Mort um, just said, "Why don't you uh, do something else?" And sign it under a different name, right. <laughs> and we'll see if the guy could tell the difference. And that guy never said anything. Well, also, so he, more, he hated uh, Dan it, Klaus's work. Uh, he also <laughs> shoved it into like the annuals and things like that at first, you know. And then he got into the regular magazines. So right, was... yeah. So this guy hated Dan Klaus, but he was fine with Stash Gillespie. Yeah. So, <laughs> but anyhow, with me and Mort, if I remember correctly, Mort he didn't rule out me drawing stuff for. <laughs> Cracked, but he told me what happened with Dan. Ah, okay. And so he said, "I worry that we'll go down that same role because your work is also your. It's very much you. You're not striving to be another Jack Davis. So, um, uh, he says, I worry that we're gonna the same thing will happen." Mm. And I and I don't want this guy to become allergic to your name. So, Mort said, "You know you." I like your writing. Why don't you just write for us? And I said, "That's." I go, "That to me, that's even preferable. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine." So actually, uh, I, I remember Klaus illustrated uh, something that I wrote. It was the first time we collaborated, and I remember loving the way that came out. Mm-hmm. I actually did. I think it was a one pager that uh, John Severin drew. <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, I never thought I would have been collaborating with <laughs> some legendary EC artist, right? <laughs> And then I did some other artists that I got to know later. There was other younger artists that were just cutting their teeth and cracked at that same time. Uh, Bill Ray, mm-hmm. I seem to recall, he drew a few things that I had written. Yeah. And um, who's the other one? Uh, Bob Fingerman. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah there was strangely enough, that... all you guys over the over time ended up at Mad later on. So it's like. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's very funny. true. Yeah, yeah that's strange. <laughs> Um, let's see. Um, well, tell us a little bit about Mad. You, you didn't work on Mad right away. It was like years later, right? I've... Yeah, it was like in the early aughts, around, I don't know, 2000, 2002. Yeah. And uh, I never, ever dealt directly with the editorial department. I just worked in, with our director was Sam Viviano. Mm-hmm. I actually remember meeting Sam Viviano ages ago. I think he was the art director of Bananas Magazine. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was owned by Scholastic, but it was yes. they or Mad Magazine. Yes. And yes. Uh, the editor was Jovial Bob Stein, who later found fame as R.L. Stein of the Goosebumps books. I don't know if you knew that. but <laughs> oh, oh, no, I didn't know Yeah, that. so it's the same guy. <laughs> huh. And um, so I knew Sam from way back then. I don't think he gave me any work for Bananas Magazine, but he still seemed like a nice guy. You know, he, he didn't give me any work just because my work was still way too crude. Yeah. You know, I couldn't argue with that. That was true. Mm-hmm. And um, But then by, you know... 20 years later <laughs> I was suddenly good enough and, uh, and and so I'd always deal with him and there was uh, somebody head of the production there, Ryan Flanders mm-hmm. so one or the other would just send me a script and tell me to draw it and I liked it one thing, when you're freelancing mm-hmm. uh, something that I always appreciate is when the person hiring you tells you exactly what to draw and they were very specific they mm-hmm. would uh, Sam would say, do you want me to... He goes, here's the script, but do you want me to rough out how we're envisioning 
all the drawings should be? And I was like, yes, of course, always. I don't mm-hmm. want to guess and <laughs> guess wrong. Yeah. So I really appreciated how, uh, I don't know, anal <laughs> <laughs> sure. they were. It, made, it just made it so much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I did the stuff that I was doing wasn't terrible. It wasn't brilliant like Matt used to be. Or maybe I'm just being prejudiced because, you know, it's like I, I always think that Matt can't hold up to when I was a kid yeah. and of course people who read Mad when Kurtzman was doing it they would say well once Kurtzman left forget it and I had no use for Mad yeah. and that was the same with me I read it in the late 60s I think I started I started to right. outgrow it in the early 70s mm-hmm. graduated to National Lampoon yeah. and um uh, so, so ever since then, it's like when I'd see Mad, it's, it's not like, oh, this is terrible and the, the art is no good. It was all good. It was all professional. But just, uh, you know, it's, uh, there was a certain sameness to it. They had a formula, yeah. undeniably. Well, I don't know. So who... they... Go ahead. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like I would never be floored by anything they'd ask me to illustrate. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, it was just the mere fact that it was Mad Magazine. Yeah. The, page, the, the, the page rates were fine. And uh, and it was mad. I, yeah. I, I just Drew Friedman told me the same thing. He says it's Mad Magazine. Yeah, I can't say no to it. I can't right. say no to Mad Magazine. Yeah, and he's been in and, there, and so is Fingerman later on. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just curious, and so was, and was so was Bill Ray. In fact, that was one of the reasons why he he went. He really wanted to be in Mad. And uh, if you read my crack book, the big deal was uh, that. Mort Todd gave Bill Ray this anti-William Gaines story called Tales from the Creep or something like that. <laughs> and he <laughs> wanted Bill Ray to sign his name really big on it, and it was mainly because he knew he was defecting to Mad, you know. And yeah. <laughs> he did it, but, you know, he didn't like it right. too much. But anyway. No. Um, no, Mort, Mort was an instigator. He yes. loved stirring up still the is. shit back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> he still is. Um, on Mad, were, so, is that ironic? was always mad at him and let Sometimes for very good reason. <laughs> <laughs> so on Mad, that's kind of ironic. Did you write anything for Mad, or you just drew? So. <laughs> no, you know they would ask me. It was weird. They would ask me to. Uh huh. Um, but that process was so different. Like I said, I really enjoyed uh, how when they asked me to draw something, it's like there it is. Here's the script. Mm. Here's what well, exactly what we want you to draw. You know, so it was like it was so easy. It was very easy to do that. Wow. Um, with the writing, it was a totally different process. Then I was dealing with the editorial staff. I really got the feeling that there were too many cooks. Mm. Uh, they, it really seemed like that editorial meeting table had way too many people sitting at it, yeah. with each person coming up with a reason not to go with something or mm-hmm. tweaking it. And uh, what I found, and I only tried it a handful of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found maddening, maddening about it is I'd submit an idea that I think this is totally mad-worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of time would go by, and then their response would be, no. So it's like, you're giving me nothing to go on. It's like, yeah. a, you're just asking me to throw shit at the wall, and maybe the six or eight or twelve of you editors can all right. miraculously agree on, agree on something I sent you. Yeah. And one time, I even wrote and complained about it. I don't know if it, I wound up pissing them off uh, uh, but with, I submitted a specific idea like this little comic strip idea that I hoped could be like because I started a little comic strip section mm-hmm. I submitted an idea and they rejected it no explanation they just rejected it like they always did 
Right. And uh, all of a sudden, a year or two later, there was another cartoonist who was doing something. The idea was incredibly similar. Yeah. So I was just like, what the hell? And I wrote to them, and they got upset. But they were worried. What they were worried about and what they thought I was implying, which I wasn't, was you took my idea and handed it to somebody else. You right. just, you, yeah. like, you stole my idea. And that wasn't what I was yeah. saying. That wasn't my point. <laughs> so they said, so they looked into it and they said, look, Pete, believe us, there was no, um, they didn't deny the similarity. They just said, there is a, it, nothing like that happened. It wasn't like, there was no way that what you sent to us wound up in the hands of this other artist. Yeah. That did not happen. Yeah. Um, and I said, that wasn't my point. Right. You rejected my idea, and then you accepted my idea. Right. Only, only drawn by somebody that, in my opinion, was a much lousier cartoonist. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, well, you never told me why you rejected my idea, yeah. and then you wind up accepting it. And so I was like, I'm not good. This is that's it. I'm not yeah. ever going to bother submitting an idea to you again. Now, someone like you, do you get the same form letter that they send to everybody? Yeah. Or do they actually? I remember just, I remember just getting an email saying nah, just no. Oh wow, okay. And that's just it too. I would get okay. the no from the art director. Sam would tell me, oh, they told me no. Okay. So I would, I had like I never I never had like a direct dealing with any of their editors. Okay. I never I didn't have any of their email addresses. Mm. It always would go through the art director. Oh, okay. And he would just say, yeah, they said no. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> the reason why is uh, I I would submit things to Matt over the years, uh, and I'd get the standard form letter which had little check boxes which were amusing, but you, you're annoyed because you want to get accepted, of course. And mo- more often than not, I would get rejected because nope, not in the mad vein. And I go, it's totally in the mad vein. You just did this last issue, not the same joke, but I mean the same kind of you know. <laughs> and I've been reading Mad for forty years. I know what the mad vein is, you know. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, I I don't know what how they get things published. And then I've had friends of mine, hey, I finally got published. How did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I I I did interview Sam Viviano years ago for the Crackbook too. And uh, years later, when I was starting to submit to Mad again, I asked him. I said, "Does it help to be your friend uh, to get into Mad?" And he goes, "No." <laughs> <laughs> so like okay, um, but then now Mad's kind of seemingly going away, so it's like I don't know what the deal is on this stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, time to bring back Weirdo. Come on, come on. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've covered quite a bit of your career. Um, is there anything else? Let's talk about like what you're currently working on and kind of wrap it up with that so what are you currently working on these days well over the last 10 years for this past decade probably what my main focus was doing these three biographical comics graphic novels and they were of a theme i did these three full-length comic books about all the three characters the the three subjects were all women whose you know most active years arguably were between the two world wars so it has that theme to it and i'm very proud of those books it's just that um anybody who's ever done any kind of biography can attest to this it's a lot of work for not enough money (laughs) (laughs) so uh so i'm not at this point i don't have any intention of doing another full-length biographical book but meanwhile for the last 
almost 20 years, I've been a regular contributor to a magazine called Reason. Okay. And both as an illustrator and as an occasional cartoonist, like I'll do journalistic type comics for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, st- starting around now, um, I already have two that are in print. I'm going for them. I'm going to do these four-page biographical pieces. So I'm going to try to encapsulate certain biographical figures and try to encapsulate their lives in just four pages. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so that's something that's taken up a lot of my time. Another thing, too, that I've only just started working on, and, um, uh, and a lot of this is very new to me, but I'm. do you ever hear of a company called Great Courses? It's an mm-hmm. online tutorial website and it's pretty much they hire professors to teach a course online Mm. uh, about any subject Um, you know the history of Byzantium you name it Uh, so they uh, I'm going to do a how to comics course for them Mm. they've only just started doing courses on creating drawing things like that Uh, I used to be yeah, this company's been around for 25 years, and traditionally it's still just a professor standing behind a podium and talking his or her head off as they cut away to historical pictures of people torturing each other. But uh, <laughs> So what's new to them is how uh, how to portray somebody demonstrating things. But uh, I've only just started getting underway with this. It's, it's, I have a big learning curve with this, but I'm uh, eager to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and is there any sort of way people can get a hold of you or a website or anything you'd like to plug? Or <laughs> Well, I had a website from peterbag.com, which I let die Oops. for various reasons. I might start sooner or later. I guess I'll start my own website again. But, yeah, there's a, I'm on Facebook. I mean, it's Peterbag Comics, all like one word, and it's easy to find. Just got to Google it, and mm-hmm. people could contact me through that uh, and Twitter. And uh, and I have my email addresses on the Facebook. So I'm basically these days I'm just using Facebook as my uh, my web page. And yeah, it's very easy to contact me through that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of us are. <laughs> um, and uh, any uh, personal appearances at conventions in the next few months? Or? No, last year. I mean, the last year, this year, 2019, I did a lot of comic conventions, but. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, nothing. I, I just did one more just this past weekend, and uh, nothing is planned for quite a while. Mm. Next year, in the year 2020, what is supposed? Hopefully, it'll come out before the year closes. Is uh, a big slipcover hardbound three-volume complete Hate comics. Oh, wow. So every okay. every issue of Hate is going to be collected into a hardbound book. And uh, but it's uh, and I would be making an effort of promoting that, agreeing to do comic conventions, and pro- it's, it's supposed to tie in with the 30th anniversary of, of Hate. But um, the book isn't going to be out until October, November. It's it's a like Christmas release, basically. Of 2020, um, I mean. Yeah, of 2020. Okay, so, so yes, yeah, there's still a year ago. So in 2021, you'd probably be making the rounds to like San Diego or Emerald City right. or Seattle. And or just assuming that the book will be in print, then I did agree to go to a comic convention uh, in Minneapolis oh. in November. I know Minneapolis in November. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I remember going. 
going there in October and almost froze to death. The weather was so horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, best of luck with that project. And, you know, always looking forward to any new hate coming down the pike, or are you pretty much done with nah, that at this point? Nah, that, that, you know, if, if suddenly... If I suddenly get inspired or there's this huge demand for me to create more hate comics, I will. But that's, that doesn't seem to be in the cards at the moment. Okay. Well, fair enough. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you today, Peter. And Same with you. I want to thank you very much. Sure, and thank you. Have All right, a good day. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Peter Bagg, for being my special guest. Episode number 58 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. of your loot jeweled blue tube